you start with this idea that like democracy is great and like we should have tons and tons of people participating, tons of people participate, and then it turns out that like most participation is actually just noise and not that useful. That really squarely puts SBF in sort of like the finance crowd, much more so than um, startups or, or crypto. Founders will always talk about like building and like startups is like so important or whatever. And like, what are all of them doing in their spare time? They're like reading books, they're reading essays and like, and then those like books and essays influence how they think about stuff. Okay. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Nadia Asparova. She is previously the author of Working in Public, The Making and Maintenance of Open Source Software, and she is currently researching what the new tech elite will look like. Nadia, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, okay, so this is uh, perfect timing, obviously, given what's been happening with SBF. How much do you think SPF was motivated by effective altruism? Where do you place them in the whole dimensionality of idea machines and motivations? Yeah, I mean, I know there's sort of like conflicting accounts going around. Um, like, I mean, just from my sort of like character, character study or looking at SPF, it seems pretty clear to me that he is sort of inextricably tied to the concepts of utilitarianism that then motivate effective altruism. Um, the difference for me in sort of like where I characterize effective altruism is I think it's much closer to sort of like finance Wall Street elite mindset than it is to startup mindset, even though a lot of people associate effective altruism with tech people. Um, so, yeah, to me, like that really squarely puts SBF in sort of like the finance crowd much more so than um, startups or, or crypto. And I think that's something that gets really misunderstood about him. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I find that interesting because... If you think of Jeff Bezos when he started Amazon, he wasn't somebody like John Perry Barlow, who was just motivated by the free philosophy of the Internet. You know, he saw a graph of Internet usage going up and to the right, and he's like, I should build a business on top of this. And in a sort of loophole way, try to figure out, like, what is the thing that is uh, that is the first thing you would want to put a SQL database on top of to uh, ship and produce? And books was the answer. So and obviously, he also came from a hedge fund, right? Would you play somebody like him also in the old finance crowd rather than as a startup founder? Yeah, it's kind of a weird one because he's both associated with the early complete computing revolution, but then also AWS was sort of like what kicked off all of the 2010s sort of startup. Yeah. Um, and I think in the way that he's started thinking about his public legacy and just from sort of his public behavior, I think he fits much more squarely now in that sort of tech startup elite mindset of the 2010s crowd more so than the Davos elite crowd of the the 2000s mm, oh well, what in specific are you referring to uh, well he's come out and been like sort of openly critical about a lot of uh uh like davos type institutions um he kind of pokes fun at uh mainstream media and for not believing in him not believing in aws um and i think he's because he sort of like spans across like both of these generations he's been able to see the the evolution of of like how um maybe like his earlier peers function versus the sort of second cohort of peers that he came across. Um, but to me, he seems much more like, uh, uh, much, much, much more of the sort of like startup elite mindset. Um, and I can kind of back up a little bit there, but, uh, the, what I associate with the Davos wall street kind of crowd is much more of this focus on, um, quantitative thinking, measuring efficiency, um, and then also this like globalist mindset, like I think the, mm. the vision that they want to ensure for the for the world is this idea of like a very interconnected world where we, um, you know, sort of like the United Nations kind of mindset. And that is really like literally what the Davos gathering is, um, whereas Bezos from his actions today feels much closer to the startup um, like 
Y Combinator post AWS kind of mindset of um, founders that were really made their money by taking these non-obvious bets on talented people. So they were Mm -hmm. much less focused on credentialism. Um, They were much more into this idea of meritocracy. Um, I think we sort of uh, forget like how commonplace this trope is of like, you know, the young founder in in a dorm room. Um, and that was really popularized by the 2010s cohort of the startup elite of being someone that may have like absolutely no skills, no background in industry, uh, but can somehow sort of like turn the entire industry over on its head. And I think that was sort of like the unique insight of the tech startup crowd. Um, and yeah, when I think about just sort of like some of the things that Bezos is doing now, it feels like she's, she identifies with that much more strongly of um, being this sort of like lone cowboy or having this like one one talented person with really great ideas who can sort of change the world. Um, I think about the, uh, what is it called? The Altos Institute or um, the new like science initiative that he put out where he was recruiting um, these like scientists from academic institutions and paying them really high salaries just to attract like the very best top scientists from around the world. That's much more of that kind of mindset than it is, um, it, than it is about like putting faith in sort of like existing institutions, which is what we would see from more of like a Davos kind of mindset. Interesting. Do you think that in the future, like the kids of today's tech billionaires will be future aristocrats? So effective altruism will be a sort of elite aristocratic philosophy. They'll be like tomorrow's Rockefellers. Yeah, I kind of worry about that, actually. Um, I think of there as being like within the U.S., um, we were kind of lucky in that we have these two different types of elites. We have the aristocratic elites and we have meritocratic elites. Uh, most other countries, I think, basically just have aristocratic elites, especially comparing like the U.S. to to Britain in this way. Um, and so in, in the aristocratic model, your wealth and your power is sort of like conferred to you by previous generations. You just kind of like inherit it from your parents or your family or whomever. Um, and the upside of that, if there is an upside, um, is that you get really socialized into this idea of what does it mean to be a public steward? What does it mean to think of yourself um, and like your responsibility to the rest of society as a sort of like privileged elite person? Um, in the U.S., we have this really great thing where you can kind of just, you know, we have the American dream, right? So um, lots of people that didn't grow up with money can break into the elite ranks by um, by doing something that makes them really successful. And, uh, and that's like a really special thing about the U.S. So we have this whole class of like meritocratic elites who may not have aristocratic backgrounds, but ended up doing something within their lifetimes that made them successful. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's a really cool thing. The downside of that being that you don't really get like socialized into what does it mean to like have this fortune and do something interesting with your money. Um, you don't have this sort of like generational benefit of um, uh, that, that the aristocratic elites have of sort of um, presiding over your land or whatever you want to call it, where you're sort of like learning how to um, think about yourself in relation to the rest of society. And so it's much easier to just kind of like hoard your wealth or whatever. Um, and so when you, when you think about sort of like what are the next generations, or the children of the meritocratic elites going to look like or what are they going to do? It's very easy to imagine them kind of just becoming aristocratic elites um, in the sense of like, yeah, they're just going to like inherit their, the money from their families. And uh, and, and they, they haven't also really been socialized into like how to think about their role in society. And so, um, yeah, all the mer- meritocratic elites eventually turn into aristocratic elites, which is where I think you start seeing this trend now towards people wanting to sort of like spend down their fortunes within their lifetime or within mm-hmm. Um, a set number of decades after they die because they kind of see what happened in previous generations and they're like oh i don't i don't want to do that <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. well it's interesting you mentioned that the aristocratic elites have feel they have the responsibility to give back i guess more so than the meritocratic, meritocratic elites but uh I, I believe that in the u.s the amount of people who give to philanthropy 
and the total amount they give is higher than in Europe, right? Where they probably have a higher ratio of aristocratic elites. Uh, yeah. Wouldn't you expect the opposite if the aristocratic elites are the ones that are, you know, inculcated to give back? Uh, well, I assume like most of the people that are um, the, the figures of all sort of like Americans giving back is spread across like all Americans, not just the wealthiest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, you would predict that among the, the top 10 percent of Americans, there's less philanthropy than the top 10 percent of Europeans. Uh, uh, there's. Sorry, I'm not sure I understand the question. Add the, I guess, does the ratio of meritocratic to aristocratic elites change how much philanthropy there is among the elites? Um, yeah, I mean, like here we have much more of a culture of like even among aristocratic elites, this idea of like institution building or like large donations to like build institutions, whereas in Europe, a lot of the public institutions are created by government and and there's sort of this mentality of like, like pri private citizens don't experiment with public institutions. That's the government's job. And they're like, you see that sort of like pervasively throughout all of like European culture is like um, when we want when we want something to change in public society, we look to government to like regulate or change it. Whereas in the US, it's kind of much more like choose your own adventure. And you um, and, and we don't really see the government as like the sole provider or shaper of public institutions. We also look at private citizens and like there, uh, there's so many things that um like public institutions that we have now that were not started by government, but were started by private philanthropists. Um, and that's like a really unusual thing about, about the U.S. So there's this common pattern in philanthropy where uh, a guy will become a billionaire and then his wife will be heavily involved with or even potentially in charge of, you know, the family's philanthropic efforts. And there's many examples of this, right? Like Bill and Melinda Gates, um, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg awesome. and... Yeah, 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 exactly. And Dustin Moskovitz and, um, um, uh, I, yeah, yeah. So what is the consequence of this? How is philanthropy, the causes and the foundations, how are they different because of this pattern? Well, I mean, I feel like we see that pattern, like the problem is that what, what even is philanthropy is changing very quickly. So we can say historically that not even historically, in, in recent history, in recent decades, that has probably been true. That wasn't true in, say, like, um, late 1800s, early 1900s. It was, you know, Carnegie and Rockefeller were the ones that were actually doing their own philanthropy, not mm -hmm. their spouses. Um, so I'd say it's a more recent trend. Um, but now I think we're also seeing this thing where, like, a lot of wealthy people are not necessarily um, doing their philanthropic activities through foundations anymore. Um, and that's true both within like traditional philanthropy sector and sort of like the looser definition of what we might consider to be philanthropy, depending on how you define it, um, which I kind of more broadly want to define as like the actions of elites that, that are sort of like, you know, public facing activities. Um, but like even within sort of traditional philanthropy circles, we have like, you know, the 51C3 nonprofit, which is, you know, traditionally how people, uh, you know, house all their money in a foundation and then they do their philanthropic activities out of that. But in more recent years, we've seen this trend towards um, like LLCs. Um, so Emerson Collective, I think, might have been maybe the first one to do it. Um, that was Steve Jobs's um, philanthropic foundation. Uh, and then um, Mark Zuckerberg with Chan Zuckerberg Initiative also used an LLC. And then since then, a lot of other, um, especially within sort of like tech wealth, we've seen that move towards people using LLCs instead of 501c3s because they um, it just gives you a lot more flexibility in the kinds of things you can fund. You don't just have to fund other nonprofits. 
Um, and then you also see um, donor-advised funds, so DAFs, which are sort of this like hacky workaround to foundations as well. So anyway, I guess point being that like this sort of mental model of like, you know, one person makes a ton of money and then their spouse kind of directs these like nice, feel good, like philanthropic activities, I think is like may not be the model that we continue to move forward on. And I, I'm kind of hopeful or curious to see um, like what does uh, a return to like because we've had so many new people making a ton of money in the last 10 years or so, we might see this return to sort of like the Gilded Age style philanthropy where people are not necessarily just like forming a philanthropic foundation and looking for the nicest causes to fund, but are actually just like thinking a little bit more holistically about like, how do I help build and create like a movement around a thing that I really care about? Um, how do I think more broadly around like funding companies and nonprofits and individuals and like doing lots of different different mm -hmm. kinds of activities? Because I think like the broader goal that like motivates at least um, like the new sort of elite classes to want to do any of this stuff at all. Like, I don't really think philanthropy is about altruism. I just, I think like the term philanthropy is just totally fraught and like refers to too many different things and it's not very helpful. Um, but I think like the part that I'm interested in at least is sort of like what motivates elites to go from just sort of like making a lot of money and then like thinking about themselves to then thinking about sort of like their place in broader public society. And I think that starts with thinking about how do I control uh, like media, academia, government are sort of like the three like arms of the public sector. Um, and we think of it in that way a little bit more broadly, where it's it's really much more about sort of like maintaining control over your own power, um, more so than sort of like this like altruistic kind of, you know, whitewashed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Then, it, then it, it becomes like, you know, there's so many other like creative ways to think about um, like how that might happen. Um, that's, that's, that's really interesting. That's a, yeah, that's a really interesting way of thinking about, uh, what it is you're doing with philanthropy. Um, isn't the word noble descended from a word that basically means to give alms to, uh, people like if you're in charge of them, you give alms to them. And in a way, I mean, uh, it might've been another word I'm thinking of, but, um, in a way, yeah, a part of what motivates altruism, not obviously all of it, but part of it is that, uh, yeah, you, you influence and uh, power, not even in a necessarily negative connotation, but uh, that's definitely what motivates altruism. So having that yeah. put square front and center is refreshing and honest, actually. Yeah, I don't I really don't see it as like a negative thing at all. And I think most of the like, you know, writing and journalism and, and academia um, that focuses on philanthropy tends to be very wealth critical. I'm not at all like I personally don't feel wealth critical at all. Um, uh, I think like, again, sort of returning to this like mental model of like aristocratic and, and meritocratic elites. Aristocratic elites are able to sort of like pass down, like encode what they're supposed to be doing in each generation because they have this kind of like familial ties. And I think like on the meritocratic side, like if you didn't have any sort of language around altruism or public stewardship, then like it's like you, you need to kind of create that narrative for the meritocratically or else you know there, there's just like nothing to to hold on to so i think like it makes sense to talk in those terms um andrew carnegie being yeah. sort of like the father of modern philanthropy in the u.s like um wrote these um series of essays about wealth that were like very influential and where he sort of talks about this like moral obligation and i think like really it was kind of this like um a quiet way for him to even though it's ostensibly about sort of like giving back or um uh you know, helping lift up the next generation of of people, the next generation of entrepreneurs. Like, I think it really was much more of a, a protective stance of saying, like, if he doesn't frame it in this way, then people are just going to knock down the concept of wealth altogether. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's really interesting. 
And it's interesting in which cases this kind of influence has been successful and where it's not. When Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post, it's uh, has there been any, in any counterfactual impact on how the Washington Post is run as a result? Uh, I doubt it. Um, but, you know, when Musk takes over Twitter, I guess it's a much more expensive purchase. We'll see what the influence is, negative or positive, but it's certainly different than what Twitter otherwise would have been. So control over media, it's, I guess it's a bigger meme now. Um, yeah. uh, um, l- l- let me just take a digression and ask about open source for a second. So um, based on your experience studying these open source projects, do you find the theory that Homer and Shakespeare were basically container words for these open source repositories that stretch out through our centuries? Do you find that more plausible now, rather than them being individuals, of course? Um, do you find that more plausible now, given your uh, given your study of open source? Sorry, or what less did, plausible? What's it? Oh, okay. <laughs> so the, the the idea is that they weren't just one person; it was just like a whole bunch of people throughout a bunch of centuries yeah. who composed different parts of each story or who composed different stories. The Nicholas Bourbaki model, same concept of you know, it's a single mathematician who is actually comprised of like lots of different. Yeah, mathematicians. yeah. Um, I think it's actually the opposite would be sort of my mm. conclusion of we think of open source as this very like collective volunteer effort. And I think um, use that as an excuse to not really contribute back to open source or not really think about like how open source projects are maintained because we were like, you know, and you kind of have this bystander effect where you're like, well, you know, someone's taking care of it. It's volunteer oriented. Like, of course, there's someone out there taking care of it. Um, but in reality, it actually turns out it is just one person. So maybe it's a little bit more like a Wizard of Oz type mm. model. It's actually just like one person behind the curtain that's like, you know, doing everything. And you, you see this huge, you know, grandeur and you think there must be so many people that are yeah, behind yeah, yeah. it. And just one person. Um, yeah. And I think that's sort of undervalued. I think a lot of the rhetoric that we have about open source is rooted in sort of like early 2000s kind of starry eyed idea about like the power of the Internet and the idea of like crowdsourcing and Wikipedia and all this stuff. And then, like, in reality, like, we kind of see this convergence from, um, like, very broad-based collaborative volunteer efforts to, like, narrowing down to kind of, like, single creators. And I think a lot of, like, you know, single creators are the people that are really driving a lot of the internet today and a lot of cultural production. Oh, that's that's super fascinating. Does that, in general, make you more sympathetic towards the lone view, uh, genius view of accomplishments in history? Not just in literature, I guess, but just, like, when you think back to how likely is it that you know, Newton came up with all that stuff on his own versus how much was fed into him by, you know, the, the others around him. Yeah, I think so. I feel um, I've never been like a big, like, you know, great founder theory kind of person. Um, I think I'm like, my, my true theory is, I guess, that ideas are maybe some sort of like sentient, like, concept or virus that operates outside of us. And we are just sort of like the vessels through which like ideas flow. So in that sense, you know, it's not really about any one person, but I do think, um, I think I, I tend to lean, like in terms of sort of like where does creative, like creative effort come from? I do think a lot of it comes much more from like a single individual than it does from wisdom of the crowds. Uh, but everything just serves like different purposes, right? Like, cause I think like within open source, it's like not all of open source maintenance work is creative. In fact, most of it is pretty boring and drudgerous and that's the stuff that no one wants to do and that like... <laughs> one person kind of got stuck with doing. Um, and that's really different from like who created a certain open source project, um, which is a little bit more of that like creative mindset. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Do you think more projects uh, in open source, so just take a popular repository, 
Um, on average, do you think that these repositories would be better off if, let's say, a larger percentage of them where pull requests were closed and feature requests were closed? Uh, you can look at the code, but you can't interact with it or its creators in any way. Should more repositories have this model? Yeah, I definitely think so. Make the world much happier that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting to think about the implications of this for other uh, areas outside of code, right? Which is where it gets really interesting. I mean, in general, there's like a discussion. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, that was just good. I mean, that's basically what's for the, the writing of, of my book because I was like, okay, I feel like whatever's happening open source right now, you start with this idea that like democracy is great and like we should have tons and tons of people participating, tons of people participate. And then it turns out that like most participation is actually just noise and not that useful. And then it ends up like scaring everyone away. And in the end, you just have like, you know, one or a small handful of people that are actually doing all the work while everyone else is kind of like screaming around them. Um, this becomes like a really great metaphor for what happens in social media. Um, and the yeah. reason I went, I, after I wrote the book, I went and um, worked at, at Substack. And, you know, part of it was because I was like, I think the model is kind of converging from like, you know, Twitter being this big open space to like suddenly everyone is retreating. Like the public space is so hostile that everyone must retreat into like smaller private spaces. So then, you yeah. know, group chats became a thing, Substack became a thing. And um, yeah, it just feels sort of like realistic, right? Yeah, yeah, no, that's really fascinating. Uh, yeah, the Straussian message in that book is very strong. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, but in general, there's uh, when you're thinking about something like corporate governance, right? There's a big question, and I guess even more interestingly, when you think if you think DAOs are going to be a thing, and you think that we will have to reinvent corporate governance from the ground up, there's a question of should these be run like monarchy? Should they be sort of oligarchies where the board is in control? Uh, should they be just complete democracies where everybody gets one vote on what you do at the next, you know, shareholder meeting or something. Um, and the, the, this book and the, that analysis is actually pretty interesting to think about. Like, how how, how should yeah. corporations be run differently, if at all? What what is it, does it inform how you think uh, the average corporation should be run? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we are seeing a little bit of not a corporate governance expert, but I do, I do feel like we're seeing a little bit of this like um, backlash against. Uh, like you know shareholder activism and like extreme focus on sort of like DEI and boards and things like that and like I think we're seeing a little bit of people starting to like take the reins and take control again because they're like ah that doesn't really work so well it turns out um I think DAOs are going to learn this hard lesson as well um it's still maybe just too early to say what is happening in in DAOs right now but at least the ones that I've looked at it feels like there is a very common failure mode of people saying um you know like let's just have like let's have this be super democratic and like leave it to the crowd to kind of like run this thing and figure out how it works. And it turns out you actually do need a strong leader, even in the beginning. And this, this is something I learned just from looking at open source projects where it's like, you know, very rarely, or if at all, do you have a project that starts sort of like leaderless and faceless. And then, you know, usually there is some strong creator uh, leader or, or, or influential figure that is like driving the project forward for a certain period of time. And then you can kind of get to the point when you have enough of an active community that maybe that leader takes a step back and lets other people take over. But it's not like you can do that off, off of day one. And that's sort of this open question that I have for, for crypto as an industry more broadly, because I think like if I think about sort of like what is defining each of these generations of people that are, you know, pushing forward new technological paradigms. Um, I mentioned that like Wall Street finance mindset is very um, focused on like globalism and on, on this sort of like efficiency quantitative mindset. You have the tech Silicon Valley Y Combinator kind of generation that is really focused on top talent um, and the idea this sort of like, you know, founder mindset, um, the power of like individuals breaking institutions. And then you have like the crypto mindset, which is 
this sort of like faceless leaderless, like governed by protocol and by code mindset, which um, is like intriguing to me. Um, but I have a really hard time squaring it with seeing like in some sense, open source was the experiment that started playing out, you know, 20 years before then. And some things are obviously different in crypto because tokenization completely changes the incentive system for um, contributing and maintaining uh, crypto projects versus like traditional open source projects. But in the end, also like humans are humans. And like, I feel like there are a lot of lessons to be learned from open source of like, you know, they also started out early on as being very starry eyed about the, the power of like hyper democratic um, regimes. And it turned out like that does, this just like doesn't work in practice. And so like, how is crypto going to like square that? Um, I'm just, yeah, very curious to see what happens. Yeah, that's super fascinating. That raises an interesting question, by the way. Uh, you've written about idea machines and you can explain that concept while you answer this question. But do you think that movements uh, can survive without a charismatic founder who is both alive and engaged? So once Will McCaskill dies, would you be shorting effective altruism? Or if like Tyler Cowen dies, would you be short uh, a pr progress studies? Or do you think that, you know, once you get a movement off the ground, it can survive on its own? That's a good question. I mean, like, I don't think there's some perfect template. Like each of these kind of has its own sort of unique quirks and characteristics in them. Um, I guess, yeah, back up a little bit. Um, idea machines is this concept I have around um, what the transition from, we were talking before about sort of like traditional 5.1c3 foundations as vehicles for philanthropy. What does a modern version of that look like that is not necessarily encoded in an institution? Um, and so I had this term idea machines, um, which is sort of this different way of thinking about like turning ideas into outcomes where you have a community that forms around a shared set of values and ideas. Um, so yeah, you mentioned like progress studies is an example of that or effective altruism is an example. Um, eventually that um, community gets capitalized by some funders and then uh, it starts to be able to develop an agenda and then like actually start building like, you know, operational outcomes and like turning those ideas into real world initiatives. Um, uh, and remind me of your question again. Is, <laughs> is yeah. So like, once yeah. Uh, once the charismatic founder dies of a movement. Can the move is a movement basically handicapped in some way? Like maybe it'll still be a thing, but it's never going to reach the heights it could have reached if that main yeah. guy had been around. I think there are just like different shapes and classifications of like different different types of communities here. So like, and I'm just thinking back again to sort of like different types of open source projects where it's not like there's like one model that fits perfectly for all of them. So I think there are some communities where it's like, yeah, I mean, I think Effective Altruism is maybe a good example of that where. Like the community has grown so much that I like if all their leaders were to, you know, knock on wood, disappear tomorrow or something like that, um, like I think the movement would still keep going. There are enough true believers, like even within the, you know, next order of, of that community that like I think that would just continue to grow. Um, whereas you have like, yeah, maybe certain like smaller or more nascent communities that are like or just like communities that are much more like oriented around um, like a charismatic, a charismatic founder that's just like a different type where if you lose that leader then suddenly um you know the whole thing falls apart because they're much more like these like cults or religions mm. um and i don't think it makes one better better or worse um it's like the right way to do it is probably like bitcoin where you have a charismatic leader for life because that leader is necessarily <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. so can't go away can't ever die but you still have the like you know north stars all like that the, um, then, uh... yeah it is funny. I mean, a lot of prophets have this property of you're not really sure what they believed in. So people with different temperaments can project their own preferences onto him. Um, somebody like Jesus, right? It's, uh, you know, you, you can be like a super left winger and believe Jesus did for everything you believe in. You can be a super right winger and believe the same. 
Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I, I, I think there's value in like writing cryptically more broadly as a, like I think about like, I think Curtis Yarvin has done a really good job of this where, you know, intentionally or not, but um, because like his writing is so cryptic and long-winded and like, it's like the Bible where you can just kind of like pour over it endlessly being like, what did this mean? What did this mean? Or, and in, in a weird, you know, you're always told to write very clearly. You're told to write succinctly, but like, it's actually in a weird way. You can be much more effective by being very long-winded and not obvious in what you're saying. Yes, which actually raises an interesting question that I've been wondering about. There have been movements, I guess effective altruism is a good example, that have been focused on community building um, in a sort of like explicit way. And then there's other movements where they have a charismatic founder. And moreover, this guy, he doesn't really try to recruit people. I'm thinking of somebody like Peter Thiel, for example, right? He goes on uh, like once every year or two, he'll go on a podcast and have this like really cryptic back and forth. Um, and then just kind of go away in a hole for a few year, months or a few years. And I'm curious which one you think is more effective, given the fact that you're not really competing for votes. So absolute number of people is not what you care about. It's not clear what you care about, but you do want to have more influence among the elites who matter um, in like politics and tech as well. So anyways, which uh, just your thoughts on those kinds of strategies, explicitly trying to come in to build versus just kind of projecting out there in that sort of cryptic way. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, being somewhat cryptic myself, <laughs> I favor the, the cryptic methodology. Um, but I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, you mentioned Peter Thiel. I think like the Thielverse is probably like the most, uh, like one of the most influential things. In fact, that is hard. It is partly so effective because it is hard to even define what it is or wrap your head around. Mm-hmm. But you just know that sort of like every interesting person you meet somehow has some weird connection to you know Peter Thiel, um, and it's kind of funny. Um, uh, but I think this is sort of that evolution from the, you know, 51C3 Foundation to the like idea machine um, implicit. And that is this this switch from, you know, used to start the, you know, Nadia Asparova Foundation or whatever. And it was like, you know, had your name on it. And it was all about like, what do I as a funder want to do in the world? Right. And you spend all this time doing this sort of like classical, um, you know, research, going out into the field, talking to people and then you sit and you think, OK, like, here is a strategy I'm going to pursue. But like, ultimately, it's like very, very donor-centric um, in this very explicit way. And so within traditional philanthropy, you're, you're seeing this sort of like backlash against that um, in like, you know, straight up like nonprofit land where now you're seeing the locus of power moving from being very donor-centric to being sort of like community-centric and people saying like, well, we don't really want the donors telling us what to do, even though it's also their money. Um, and like, you know, instead let's have this be driven by, um, by the community from the ground up. That's maybe like one very literal reaction against that like having the donor as sort of the central power figure but i think idea machines are kind of like the like maybe like the more realistic or effective answer um in that like the donor is still like without the presence of a funder like the community is just a community they're just sitting around and talking about ideas of like what could possibly <laughs> happen um but, like they don't have any money to make anything happen but yeah. like i think like really effective funders are good at being sort of like subtle and thoughtful about like like you know no one wants to see like the Peter Thiel Foundation necessarily. That's just like, it, it's so like not the style of how it works. But, you know, you meet so many people that are being funded by the same person, like just going out and sort of aggressively like arming the rebels is um, a more sort of like, yeah, just like distributed, decentralized way of thinking about like spreading one's power um, instead yeah. of just starting a foundation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even if you look at the life of influential politicians, uh, some, somebody like LBJ, or Robert Moses, it's, uh, 
how much of it was like calculated and how much of it is just like decades of building up favors and building up connections in a way that had no definite and clear plan, but it just, you're hoping that someday you can call upon them in a sort of like Godfather way. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and by the way, this is also where your work on open source comes in, right? Like there's this idea that in the movement, you know, everybody will come in with their ideas and you can community build your way towards, you know, what should be funded. And yeah, I'm inclined to believe that it's probably like a few people who have these ideas about what should be funded. And the rest of it is either just a way of like building up engagement and building up hype <laughs> or, yeah. um, uh, or, or I, I don't know, or maybe just useless, but, uh, uh, what, what, what are your so I decided I was like, I, I am like really very much a tech startup person and not a crypto person, even though I would very much like to be one because I'm like, ah, this is the future and there's so many interesting things happening. And I'm like, for the record, not at all like down in crypto. I think it is like the next big sort of movement of things that are happening but when i really come down to like the mindset it's like i am so in that sort of like top talent founder like power of the individual to break institutions mindset like that just resonates with me so much more than the like leaderless faceless like highly participatory kind of thing and again like i i am very open to that being true like i maybe i'm so wrong on that i just like i have not yet seen evidence that that works in the world i see a lot of rhetoric about how that could work or should work we have this sort of like implicit belief that like direct democracy is somehow like the greatest thing to aspire towards um but like over and over we see evidence that like that doesn't that just like doesn't really work it doesn't even have to throw out the underlying principles or values behind that like i still really believe in meritocracy i really believe in like access to opportunity i really believe in like pursuit of happiness like to me those are all like very like american values um but like I think the the where that breaks is the, the idea that like that has to happen through these like highly participatory methods. I just like, yeah, I haven't seen really great evidence of that being that working. What does that imply about how you think about uh, politics or at least political structures? You think it would it, it, you you elect a mayor, but like just forget no no participation. You, he gets to do everything he wants to do for four years, and you can get rid of him in four years. But until then, no community meetings. What well, or what does that imply about how you think? cities and states and uh countries should be run um that is some very (laughs) complicated (laughs) thoughts on that um i mean i i think it's also like everyone has the fantasy of wouldn't it be so nice if there were just one person in charge i hate all this squabbling it would just be so great if we could just you know have one person just who has exactly the views that i have and just (laughs) put them in charge and let them run things that would be very nice i just i do also think it's unrealistic like i don't think i'm you know i maybe like monarchy sounds great in in theory but in practice just doesn't like i i really embrace and i and i think like there is no perfect governance design either in the same way that there's no perfect open source project design or whatever else we were talking about um uh like, yeah, it really just depends on, like, what is, like, what is your population comprised of? There are some very small homogenous populations that can be very easily governed by, like, you know, a small government or one person or whatever, because there just isn't that much dissent or difference. Um, everyone is sort of on the same page. America is the extreme opposite in that angle. And I'm always thinking about America because, like, I don't know, I'm American and I love America. Uh, but, yeah. like, you know, everyone is trying to solve the governance question for America. And I think, like, 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we're an extremely heterogeneous population. There are a lot of competing worldviews. I may not agree with all the views of everyone in America, but like I also like I don't want just one person that represents my personal views. I think like I, I would focus more on like effectiveness in governance than I would um, like having like, you know, just one person in charge or something like that um, like I don't mind if someone disagrees with my views as long as they're good at what they do, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and so I think the questions are like, how do we improve the speed at which um, like our government works and the yeah efficacy with which it works? Like, I think there's so much room to be made uh, room for improvement there um, versus like, I don't know how much like I really care about like changing the actual structure of our government. Interesting. Uh, going back to open source for a second. Why do these companies release so much stuff in open source for free? And it's probably literally worth trillions of dollars of value to, in total. And they just release it out in free. And many of them are developer tools that other developers use to build competitors for these big tech companies that are releasing these open source tools. Uh, why did they do it? What, what, what explains it? Um, I mean, I think it depends on a specific project. But like a lot of times, these are projects that were developed internally. It's the same reason of like, like, I think code and writing are not that dissimilar in this way of, like, why do people spend all this time writing, like, long posts or papers or whatever, and then just release them for free? Like, why not put everything behind a paywall? And I think the answer is probably still in both cases where, like, Mindshare is a lot more interesting than, you know, your literal IP. Um, and so, you know, you put out, you write these, like, long reports or you tweet or whatever, like, you spend all this time creating content for free and putting it out there because you're trying to capture Mindshare. Same thing with um, companies releasing open source projects. Like, a lot of times they really want like other developers to come in and contribute to them. They want to increase their status as like an open source friendly kind of company or company or show like, you know, here's the type of code that we write internally and showing that externally. They want to like recruiting is, you know, the hardest thing for any company, right? And so being able to attract the right kinds of developers or people that, you know, might fit really well into their developer culture just matters a lot more. And they're just doing that instead of with words or doing that with code. Uh, you've talked about the need for more idea machines. You're like dissatisfied with the fact that effective altruism is a big game in town. Um, uh, is there some idea or nascent movement where, I mean, other than progress ideas, but like something where you feel like this could be a thing, but it just needs some like charismatic founder to take it to the next level. Or even if it doesn't exist yet, it just like a set of ideas around this vein is like clearly something there is going to exist. You know what I mean? Is there anything like that that you notice? Um, I only had a couple of different possibilities in that post. Yeah, I think like the progress sort of meme is probably the largest growing contender that I would see right now. I think there's Rather another that, one. Yeah. There's another one right now around sort of like the new right. If That's mm. not even like the best term necessarily for it, but there's sort of like a shared set of values there that are maybe starting with like politics, but like ideally, yeah, spreading to like other areas of public influence. Um, so I think like those are a couple like the, bigger movements that I see right now but there's like smaller stuff too like I mentioned um like tools for thought in that post where like that's a that's never going to be a huge idea machine um but it's one where you have a lot of like interesting talented people that are thinking about sort of like future of computing and um but like until maybe more recently like they there just hasn't been a lot of funding available and the funding is always really uneven and unpredictable and so that's to me an example like you know a smaller community that like just needs that sort of like extra influx to turn a bunch of abstract ideas into practice um but yeah i mean i think like yeah those are some like the bigger ones that i see right now i think there is just so much more potential to do more but i wish people would just think a little bit more creatively because 
yeah, I really do think like effective altruism kind of becomes like the default option for a lot of people. Then they're kind of vaguely dissatisfied with it and they don't like think about like, well, what do I actually really care about in the world and how do I want to push that forward? Yeah. There's also the fact that uh, effective altruism has this like very uh, fit memeplex in the sense that it's like a polytheistic religion where if you have a cause area, uh, then you don't have your own movement. You just have a cause area within our our broader movement, right? It, it just like adopts your gods into our uh, um, our movement. Um, yeah, that's what, an interesting thing I see of like people trying to lobby for effective altruism to care about their cause area, but then it's like you could just start a separate. Like yeah. if, if you can't get EA to care about, then why not just like start another one somewhere else? Yeah, yeah. Um, um, so, you know, it, it's interesting to me that the wealth boom in Silicon Valley and then tech spheres has led to the sour growth of philanthropy. But that hasn't always been the case, um, even in America. Like a lot of people became billionaires after energy markets were de- deregulated in the 80s and uh, the 90s. And then there wasn't, uh, and obviously the hub of that was like the Texas area or, you know, um, and there, as far as I'm aware, there wasn't like a boom of philanthropy motivated by the ideas that people in that region had. Um, what's different about Silicon Valley? Why are they, or do you, do, do you actually think that these other places have also had their own booms of philanthropic giving? No, I think you're right. Um, yeah, I would make a distinction between like being wealthy is not the same as being elite or whatever other term you want to use there. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, there are definitely like pockets of let's call it like more like local markets of wealth, like, yeah, Texas, Texas oil or energy billionaires um, that tend to operate kind of just more in their own sphere. Um, and a lot of, if you look at any philanthropic, they, like a lot of them will be philanthropic, philanthropically active, but they only really focus on their geographic area. Um, but there's sort of this difference in, and I, I think this is part of where it comes from um, the, the question of like, you know, like what forces someone to actually like, do something more public facing with their power. And I think that comes from your power being sort of like threatened. Um, that's like one aspect I would say of that. So like tech has only really become a lot more active in the public sphere outside of startups after the tech backlash of the mid 2010s. Um, and you can say a similar thing kind of happened with the Davos elite as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and also for the Gilded Age uh, cohort of, of, of wealth. Um, and so, yeah, when, when you have sort of, you're kind of like, you know, building in your own little world. And like, you know, we had literally like Silicon Valley where everyone was kind of like sequestered off and just thinking about startups and thinking themselves of like tech is essentially like an industry just like any other sort of, you know, entertainment or whatever. Um, and we're just kind of happy building over here. And then it was only once where like the Panopticon like turned its head towards tech and started and and they had this sort of like onslaught of, of um, uh critiques coming from sort of like mainstream discourse where they went oh like what what is my place in this world and uh you know if i don't try to like defend that then i'm gonna just kind of yeah Mm -hmm. we're gonna lose all that power so i think that that need to sort of like defend one's power can kind of like prompt that sort of action um the other aspect i'd highlight is just like i think a lot of um elites are driven by these like technological paradigm shifts um, so there's this uh, scholar, Carlotta Perez, who writes about technological revolutions and financial capital. And she identifies like a few different technological revolutions over the last, whatever, 100, 100 plus years um, that like drove this cycle of, you know, a, a new technology is invented. It's um, people are kind of like working on it in this smaller industry sort of way. There is some kind of like uh, crazy, like public frenzy and then like a, a backlash. 
Um, and then from after that, then you have this sort of like focus on public institution building. Um, but she really points out that like not all technology fits into that. Like not all technology is a paradigm shift. Sometimes technology is just technology. Um, and and uh, and so, yeah, I think like a lot of wealth might just fall into that category. Um, my favorite example is, by the way, is um, the Koch family, because you had, you know, the the Koch brothers, but then like their father was actually the one who like kind of initially made um, made their wealth but was like very localized in sort of like how he thought about philanthropy. He had his own like, you know, family foundation was just sort of like doing that sort of like, you know, Texas billionaire mindset that we're talking about of, you know, I made a bunch of money. I'm going to just sort of like, yeah, do my local philanthropic activity. It was only the next generation of of, um, his children that then like took that wealth and started thinking about like, how do we actually like move that onto like a more elite stage and thinking about Mm. like their interest in the media um, but like you can see there's like two clear generations within the same family. Like one has this sort of like local wealth mindset or one of them has the more like elite wealth mindset. And yeah, you can kind of like ask yourself, what, why did that switch happen? But um, yeah, it's clearly about more than just money. It's also about intention. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, well, it's interesting because there's if you identify the current mainstream media as affiliated with like that Davos uh, aristocratic elite or maybe not aristocratic, but like uh, the Davos uh, yeah, exactly. Um, there is a growing field of independent media, but you would not identify somebody like Joe Rogan as uh, in the Silicon Valley sphere, right? Um, so there is a new media. I just, uh, I guess these startup people don't have that much influence over them yet. Uh, and they feel yeah. to like, yeah. I think they're trying to like take that strategy, right? So you have like a bunch of founders um, like Palmer Lucky and Mark Zuckerberg and Brian Armstrong and whoever else that like will not really talk to mainstream media institutions anymore. They will not get an interview to the New York Times, but they will go to like an individual um, influencer or an individual creator and they'll do an interview with them. So like when um, Mark Zuckerberg announced Meta, like he did not get grant interviews to mainstream publications, but he went and talked to like Ben Thompson at Strategory. Um, And so I think there is like, it it fits really well with that Mm. like probably mindset of like, we're not necessarily institution building. We're going to like focus on power of individuals who sort of like defy institutions. Um, and that is kind of like an open question that I have about like what will the long term influence of the tech elite look like? Because like, you know, the the na- like human history tells us that eventually all individual behaviors kind of get codified into, in, into institutions. Right. Um, but we're obviously living in a very different time now. Um, and I think like the way that the Davos elite managed to uh, like really codify and extend their influence across all these different sectors was by taking that institutional mindset and, and um, and you know, like thinking about sort of like academic institutions and media institutions, all that stuff. Um, if the startup mindset is really inherently like anti-institution and sort of like, we don't want to build the next Harvard necessarily. We just want to like blow apart the concept of universities whatsoever um or you know we don't want to create a new cnn or a new fox news we want to just like have like fund like individual creators to do that same sort of work but in this very decentralized way um like will that work long term i don't know like is that just sort of like a temporary state that we're in right now where no one really knows what the next institutions will look like um or is that really like an important part of this generation where like we shouldn't be asking this question of like, how do you build a new media network? We should just be saying like, the answer is there is no media network. We just go to like all these individuals instead. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. Um, wh- what do you make of this idea that 
I think, let's say, that these idea machines might be limited by the fact that if you're going to start some sort of organization in them, you're very much depending on somebody who has made a lot of money independently to fund you and to grant you approval. And I just have a hard time seeing somebody who is like a Napoleon-like figure uh, being willing long-term to live under that arrangement. And that, so th th there'll just be, the, the, the people who are just uh, have this desire to dominate and be recognized, who are probably pretty important to any movement you want to create, they'll just want to go off and just like build the company or something that gives them an independent footing first. Um, and they just won't fall under any umbrella. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, like Dustin Moskowitz, for example, has been funding EA for a really long time um, and hasn't, hasn't walked away necessarily. Yeah. Um, I mean, on the flip side, you can see like SPF carries <laughs> yeah. a lot of, a lot of risk because to your point, I guess like, you know, you end up relying on this one funder, the one funder disappears and everything else kind of falls apart. Um, I mean, I think like, I don't have any sort of like, preciousness attached to the idea of like communities you know lasting forever i think this is like again if we're trying to solve for the problem of like what did not work well about 51c3 foundations for most of uh recent history like part of it was that they're you know just meant to live on to perpetuity like why why do we still have like uh you know rockefeller foundation there are now actually many different rockefeller foundations but like why does that even exist like why did that money not just get spent down um, and actually, when uh, John D. Rockefeller was first proposing the idea of uh, foundations, he wanted them to be uh, like um, to have like a finite end state. So he wanted them to last only like 50 years or 100 years when he was proposing this like federal charter. But that federal charter failed. Uh, and so now we have these like state charters and, and foundations can just exist forever. But like, I think if we want to like improve upon this idea of like, how do we prevent like meritocratic elites from turning into aristocratic elites? How do we like um yeah, how do we actually just like try to do a lot of really interesting stuff in our lifetimes? It's like a very, it's very counterintuitive because you think about like leaving a legacy must mean like creating institutions or creating a foundation that lasts forever. And, you know, 200 years from now, there's still like the Nadia Asperova Foundation out there. But like, if I really think about it, it's like, I would almost rather just do really, really, really good, interesting work in like 50 years or 20 years or 10 years and have that be the legacy versus your name kind of getting, you know, besmirched over over a century of, of institutional decay and decline. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I don't like if, you know, you have a community that lasts for maybe only last 10 years or something like that, and it's funded for that amount of time, and then it kind of elbows its usefulness and it winds down or it becomes less relevant. Like, I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing. Of course, like in practice, you know, nothing ever ends that that neatly and that <laughs> quietly. But um but yeah, I don't think that's right. a bad thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, who are some ethnographers or sociologists from a previous era that have influenced your work? So was there somebody writing about, you know, what it was like to be in a Roman legion um, or what it was like to work in a factory floor? And you're like, you know what, I want to do that for open source or I want to do that for the new tech elite. Um, for open source, I was definitely really influenced by Jane Jacobs and um, Eleanor Ostrom. Mm. I think both had this quality of, um, so, uh, yeah, Eleanor Ostrom was looking at, um, examples of common pool resources like fisheries or forests or whatever, um, and just like going and visiting them and spending a lot of time with them and then saying like, actually, I don't think tragedy of the commons is like a real thing or it's, it's not the only outcome that we can possibly have. Um, sometimes commons can be ma managed like perfectly sustainably and it's not necessarily true that everyone just like treats them very extractively. 
um, and just like wrote about what she saw. And same with Jane Jacobs sort of um, uh, looking at cities as someone who lives in one, right? Like she didn't have any fancy credentials or anything like that. She was just like, I live in the city and I'm looking around and this idea of like top down urban planning um, where you have like someone trying to design this perfect city that like doesn't change and, and doesn't yield to its people just seems completely unrealistic. And the style that both of them take in their writing is very, um, it just, it starts from them just like observing what they see and then like trying to write about it. And I, I just, yeah, that's, that's the style that I really want to emulate. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Um, or uh, people to just be talking to like, I don't know, like careers just like just talking to like open source developers. Turns out you can learn a lot more from that than just sitting around like thinking about what open source developers might be thinking about. But I have this I have had this idea of not even for like writing it out loud, but just to understand how the world works, just like shadowing people who are in just like a random position. They don't have to be a lead in any way, but just like a person who is the personal assistant to somebody influential. How to decide whose emails they forward, how they decide what's the priority or somebody who's just like an accountant for a big company. Right. It's just like what is involved there? Uh, like what kinds of organize? You know what I mean? Just like random yeah. people, the line manager at the local factory. Um, I, I just like, have no idea how these parts of the world work. And I just want to like, yeah, just shadow them for a day and see like what, what <laughs> happens there. Personal um, businesses are really interesting because everyone else focuses on sort of like, you know, the, the 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 big name figure or whatever but yeah. you know who's the actual gatekeeper there um but yeah i mean yeah. i i've definitely found like if you just start cold emailing people and talking to them people are often like surprisingly very very open to to being talked to because i don't know like most people do not get asked questions about what they do and how they think and stuff so you know yeah. you ever want to realize that dream <laughs> um so maybe I'm not like John Rockefeller in that I only want my organization to last for 50 years. Um, I'm sure you come across these people who have this idea that, you know, I'll let my money compound for like 200 years. And if it just compounds at some reasonable rate, I'll be, it'll be like the most wealthy institution in the world unless somebody else has the same exact idea. Um, if somebody wanted to do that, but they wanted to hedge for the possibility that there's a war or there's a revolt or there's some sort of change in law that draws down this wealth. Um, how would you set up a thousand year endowment basically is what I'm asking or like a 500 year endowment. Would you just put it in like a crypto wallet with us and just, you know what I mean? Like how, how, how would you go about that organizationally? How would you like, that's your goal. I want to have the most influence in high hundred years. Well, I'd worry much less. The question for me is not about how do I make sure that there are assets available to distribute in a thousand years? Because I don't know, just put in the stock market or something. <laughs> like you can do some pretty boring things to just like, you know, ensure your assets grow over time. Um, the, the more difficult question is, how do you ensure that uh, whoever is deciding how to distribute the funds distributes them in a way that you personally want them to be spent? Um, so Ford Foundation is a really interesting example of this, um, where Henry Ford like created a Ford Foundation like shortly before he died um, and just uh, pledged a lot of Ford stock to create this foundation and was doing it basically for tax reasons, had no philanthropic <laughs> it's just like this is what we're doing to like house house this wealth over here and then you know passed away son passed away um and grandson uh ended up being on the board and but the board ended up being basically like you know a bunch of people that henry ford certainly would not have ever wanted to be on his board um and and so you know and you end up seeing like the Ford Foundation ended up becoming huge, influential. Um, I like I have received money from them. Um, so it's not at all uh, an indictment of of sort of like their their views or anything like that. It's just much more of like 
you know, you had the intent of the original donor and then you had like, who are all these people that like suddenly just ended up with a giant pool of capital and then like decided to spend it however they felt like spending it. And the grandson at the time sort of like famously resigned because he was like really frustrated and was just like, this is not at all what my family wanted and like basically getting like kicked off the board. And um, so anyway, so that that is the question uh-huh. that I would like figure out if I had a thousand year endowment is like, how do I make sure that whomever manages that endowment actually shares my views one shares my views but then also like how do i even know what we need to care about in a thousand years because like i don't even know what the problems are in a thousand years and this is why like i think like very long-term thinking can be a little bit dangerous in this way because you're sort of like presuming that you know what even matters then whereas i think like figure out the most impactful things to do is just like so contextually dependent on like what is going on at the time so I can't, um, I don't know. And it, there are also foundations where, you know, the donor like writes in the charter, like this money can only be spent on, you know, X cause or whatever. But then it just becomes really awkward over time because it's like, I don't know, they're spending money on like lighthouse keepers or something like that. And it's like, you know, like this is just like not a thing that actually really like, you know, should be the main focus anymore. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think I would probably try to figure out a way to like select for like thoughtful, somehow select for like thoughtful people. Um, but like how to determine, like, I wonder if there's like a committee that like short appoint appointment terms. And then like, there's some committee that can like run a contest or something to determine like who gets to run this money or distribute this money every generation or something like that. I don't know. I'd have to call it something pretty crazy like that, but wow. <laughs> um, but yeah, you, you, yeah, that, that would be the biggest challenge I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just started reading the foundation, the book about the Ford foundation. I, I haven't got that far. Mm-hmm. It, it's so fascinating. Um, um, but, you know, that raises an interesting question. There is the problem of value drift in charities, but it's a very particular kind of value drift, right? So there's famously conquest second law that any institution that is not uh, constitutionally and explicitly right wing becomes uh, left wing over time. And this seems especially true of NGOs and charitable organizations. What's the explanation? Why is conquest second law seem true in this arena? I have to ask uh, Curtis that. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I have, I, can, I think we can observe that that is maybe what is happening. I don't think I have an amazing answer to that. I think, I mean, my, my best guess if I had to, to come to the answer is I think the the values of like democracy and peace and freedom and whatever, like there's a set of sort of like pacifying social values that mm-hmm. are very hard to disagree with. Um, and so there's always this sort of like natural drift towards that. Um, I do find that like, I think the most thoughtful people I know are often concerned, like there is a strong, like intellectual conservative movement. Um, but I think people that love nuance where, you know, where the, there is no, like, there is no mindless playbook that you can use to just sort of like, the answer is not always like direct democracy or peace or whatever if that's not your like guiding star and you are actually interested in like a fair bit of nuance um like you're not going to really run institutions and i say that as someone who is like i I, i'm yeah much more on the like nuance side but like i like i think the trade-off of that is like it just doesn't necessarily have mainstream appeal always um because you don't have these really simplified messages so yeah if you think about sort of like institutions are need to have like simplified messages that they pass on to people and those simplified messages um work much better when they're 
things that make people feel good about themselves and you're always going to have that kind of more or less word word drift um yeah 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 it raises a question of how you would set up um I mean, it's like the two monarchs problem of like, you, you, you know, like a, you need somebody who's like a good, um, a good director, but then you also need him to be able to appoint somebody who's a good director. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. It's really interesting. Um, uh, let's talk about like, I guess what uh, you and I do uh, or no, before that, actually. All right. I'm just gonna make a note for my editor right here. But all right, so the next question uh, is, um, do you think this new funding for science and thinkers, is that going to lead to a resurgence of the gentleman scholar category? Or has the nature of science just become too different and science has just gotten much more specialized now that that's no longer possible? Ooh. Um, yeah, I mean, I think within, within the realm of science specifically, uh, the sort of gentleman scientist era you know the charles darwin type era it feels a little bit bygone in the sense of yeah i don't know it feels like there was a lot of low-hanging fruit then that maybe like science is just so much bigger it is funded in a completely different way that is sort of unrecognizable from where it was before um i think when people talk about problems in science they like to romanticize the past or that's probably true for any sort of institutional problem um of just you know why can't we just have it the way that it was like 100 years ago or whatever and you know there's usually good reasons why we don't things don't run the way they did before um and like i always try to think about like how do we actually take the conditions that we're in right now and like come up with something new um that being said like even if we don't have sort of like a return to you know the the literal general gentleman scientist as default way of doing things in science um there's you know ton of room to go from the current model of how science is funded and the sort of like extremely constrained environments that people have to work in to like giving people a little bit more academic freedom a little bit more creative freedom uh to to experiment so um but i think like yeah science doesn't really have any any easy answers um i spent a bunch of time trying to understand it this summer and um yeah it's i i think because like like government funding of science became a thing right around like the middle of the of um the the 20th century uh after sort of like world war ii and um like the way that science ran before then where there was very little government funding and very little involvement to where now like the fact of the matter is that like a lot of it is government funded or most of it is government funded just means that it's like yeah completely different kind of ball game yeah um but i guess uh then for public intellectuals there's a change in especially if you're making content that is tech adjacent or something there's a change in funding from it's no longer, you know, Kevin Kelly's 10,000 um, true fans, but more like one tech billionaire who likes your work and will, you know, write you a check to investigate it for a year. Um, what is yes. the consequence of that kind of change? And you have much more concentrated sources of funding um, in terms of what areas one can focus on and one does focus on and like the ways in which they engage with their audience and publish their content um yeah, yeah. What, what, what impact does that have that i'm pretty excited about and like can only really speak within my relatively narrow sort of like tech and tech adjacent creator world but i definitely have noticed a, as someone who's been sort of independently or weirdly yeah. funded in a lot of ways for, <laughs> for a while now um like it feels like that was extremely uncommon uh when i started and now i meet a lot of people that are like me um i don't know if that's just because i meeting more people like me or if that's really a shift but 
I thought like, yeah, you know, five years ago, even it was like hard to identify a lot of people with that kind of situation. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, it's a really cool, like people talk about like, you know, how do we bring back the Medici's? How do we bring back this like model of patronage? Like it's already happening, I think, in a lot of ways. It's just that people don't talk about it. They don't, people don't, you know, unless you're being funded on Patreon or you have subsite subscriptions or there's something, some very legible way to point out like how you're making money. Like there's so many people that are just being quietly funded that just don't talk about it. Um, <laughs> so I, I do actually think like the model of patronage is very alive and well right now. It's just not super obvious. Um, yeah, yeah. And how, how do you think about the value of like, I guess what you and I, obviously we do different things, but um, in terms of like doing podcasts or writing essays and how do you think about the value of that? Like, should, should, should we just like be writing code and digging dishes and doing something that else that is more, more legibly useful to society? Like what, what, what is the, you know what I mean? Like what, what yeah, how do you yeah. think about what is the value of this? Yeah. You know, I, I'm like very, um, like I only know how to do a handful of things in this world. And <laughs> so like, I, I feel like I should be doing the thing that I cannot help myself, but I have to do all the time. Like, I don't really think I don't have a very like, rosy relationship with writing to be perfectly honest i hate writing writing makes me crazy like it's like i I don't find it to be enjoyable it's it's always enjoyable once it's over but like back for class is a little miserable um but like you know i i you would think like why do you do this thing that makes you miserable but like it's just like it's the thing i know how to do and i don't think there's anything glamorous about it i don't think there's anything special it might not be the best thing to do like there's probably more impactful things i could be doing with my time but like, it's the thing I like have to do. And I think everyone should just be doing the thing that they like absolutely have to do, whatever that is. I, that that would make me happy in the world is if everyone was just like, yeah, leaning into their obsession. So that's my obsession. Um, I do think like um, when I think about my own impact, I don't know how, how you think about it, but um, like I think about I, I want to. I want my ideas to be heard by people that I think can do something about them. So in other words, like I care much more about like quality than quantity. I don't, I'm not very active on Twitter. Um, I don't really focus on like needing to reach some kind of like mass mainstream audience. Um, when I published my book, like I, I told myself, I really like the people that need to hear about how open source works are people that work at tech companies, software developers that use open source software. Like it mattered less to me that there's like this is not the kind of book that needs to be in like an airport bookstore or whatever. Um, and it seems like essays and stuff. Like I think it's much more important to me that um, people whose opinions I care about read it. And and hopefully, you know, and I, I, I make my essays public because I hope everyone reads them. But like when I think about sort of how do I measure my impact, it's not like how many page views that I get on an essay. It's more of like yeah. who ended up talking about it and are those the people that I wanted to talk about it. Yep, yep, yeah. I think there's value um, in that. I think like people really undervalue like this. Like my 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 sort of like personal pet peeve is like founders will always talk about like building and like startups is like so important or whatever. And like, what are all of them doing in their spare time? They're like reading books. They're reading essays. And like, and then those like books and essays influence how they think about stuff. And so it is very like indirect sort of influence or in, in yeah like but like you can't like I I just feel like you know you can't sort of have out of one mouth saying like the only important thing in the world is like starting startups and and then at the same time talk about like the cool new book you read at a cocktail party like both those things are important in different ways right yeah no i, I totally agree and i i, I don't want to repeat myself because I, I i talked about this on my burn episode but one of the things we were talking about you know uh caro's books robert caro's books and one one interesting thing is you know this guy was 
nominated for a Pulitzer Prize um, before he wrote The Power Broker. Uh, so he was like a top tier investigative journalist. And can you imagine uh, you crunching the numbers as a top tier uh, investigative journalist at the peak of your career? And you're like, you know what would be a good use of my time? I'm going to spend the next seven years in almost poverty writing about uh, this one guy who had a lot of influence in New York. And I'm going to talk to any person who had conceivably even been in the same room as him or had been indirectly affected by his policies in any way. I'm going to do that obsessively for the next seven years. Um, Yeah, there's no way number crunching would get you there, but it's probably been one of the most influential books in terms of uh, how urban governance is done. I mean, like presidents have praised and read the book and said it like changed how they think about politics. So, you know, Mm -hmm. like it is the kind of thing where you wouldn't have gone to that conclusion just from. Um, yeah, yeah. Thinking about it beforehand and like, this is the most effective thing I can do. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, Um, But, okay. Uh, you, you had this recent post about, uh, you know, cl- uh, climate tribes. That was, I thought that was really interesting, especially the addendum. And by the way, I, I have noticed uh, this, um, this tendency of writers to hide the mo- most interesting thoughts mm-hmm. in footnotes and addendums. And I, I'm curious why that is, but I think it might be because your most interesting thoughts are digressions that you feel like you have to take out of the main text uh, but anyways, uh, <laughs> um, what, what I thought was interesting, um, uh, you, you're comparing um, climate doomerism to other kinds of doomerisms that are yet to become fully mature. Uh, <laughs> and I, I'm wondering, what is your predictions about the different tribes that will emerge when thinking about AI as both capabilities grow and as public awareness of those capabilities grows? Oh, gosh, I think it's definitely just too early to say on and i know that sounds like a cop out but i don't want to say things that i don't feel confident about um i think it's too early to say even within like ai though like if you think about so yeah i had these sort of like different tribes that are influencing the climate discourse today um uh there's there's some parallel version of that for ai for ai more broadly i think where um because right now i feel like ai safety gets really constrained to sort of like I don't know, like Miri or something like very, very specific. Um, I imagine like as AI becomes more widespread and more like more people have experiences with it and have opinions on it, then that might sort of like lead to other, you know, philosophies kind of forming around that um, where like and and then we'll kind of see this one very narrow view of like. I I think the sort of like Miri mindset is equivalent to like the Doomer tribe that I identified in climate where it's like that is one specific tribe, but there are a lot of other people that are really interested in climate that like don't feel doomery at all. Um, even though that's sort of like the most flashy, like media friendly kind of version of it. Um, so yeah, I mean, other than saying like as more people interact with AI, I imagine there will be more philosophies emerging there. Um, I think it's still too early to say what, what that will be. AI is still kind of like a big mystery box to me right now. So (laughs) it's Mm. there, but I don't really know what's inside. Um, ha- having studied these different sorts of um, doomerisms, uh, whether they're right or not, by the way, it's like a separate question, but just in terms of the sociology of them, uh, has it always been true that smart, talented people tend to get a lot of meaning by working on things that are seen as existential catastrophes? Or is that a property of, uh, you know, tech adjacent areas or modern tech adjacent areas? Um, like, h- how unique is this sort of sociological phenomenon? Yeah, I think it is pretty new. And that's why it's kind of gnawing at my brain a little bit. Like, I think it's really new, like last five years ish. <laughs> new. 
Um, yeah, well, and, and, and so I, I tried to sort of track this a little bit, um, and I'm not super high confident with all this, but like there's this one, you know, sort of theory around, okay, we used to have sort of like shared broader narratives that were actually Doomer-esque. So we had world wars, we had the Cold War, whatever. And so like, you know, super smart, talented people that need to be pointed in a direction somewhere, they're going to go work on those kinds of problems. And like, there's a shared understanding that like, we really are like, you know, saving our country or protecting our country or whatever by working on these these different things. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know, like STEM talent in the Cold War or whatever. Uh, and then you see, okay, after the Cold War, now we're not so like, you know, we don't have these like deep existential threats anymore. So we have to find them somewhere else. Um, and that's where like environmentalism kind of became much more um, like alarmist, whereas in the past it was kind of like this niche social cause. It became much more like we need to save the planet um, uh, and, and, and coming out of sort of like World War II and um, and, and uh, yeah, just sort of like manufacturing chemicals, like whatever. Oh, suddenly like people are just grappling with the after effects of that. Um, but like that doesn't explain sort of like in the last five years or so where it's like, it's not like a weird activist thing to work in climate. It, it can even be like a very boring thing for people to work in climate. Um, but it's like all connected to this idea of like, this is the most important thing I need to be working on. And so I think like maybe in the absence of having some like bigger narrative that is like all consuming for everyone, you kind of have to make your own meaning somewhere. And, but it is funny to me that like, we don't just say like, again, I mean, you go back to, you know, we talked about like writing and it's like, I have no defense as to like why I write all day. Like, it's just like what I have to do. Like, I cannot defend it as like the most like, you know, needle moving thing in the world or whatever. Um, I don't really relate to this sort of need to have like a like doomer narrative. There is no doomer narrative attached to why I write. I just write because like I think it's important and I think I have like ideas that are like questions I want to answer. Um, uh, and, and to me, that is that is how I define impact, though. Like to me, like that matches my model of like what I think is the most impactful thing in the world. If I didn't have that model, then yeah, maybe I would try to say, okay, like, what is the most impactful thing to be doing in the world that is like sort of external to my own personal curiosity or whatever? And I think that's where the sort of like doomer narratives come from. I am, I, I did bury in another footnote at the end of that post, um, this question about like, okay, like if we think maybe like early 2010s or something, I, I feel like there was, um, there's always like, there's this other grouping of industries that's not doomer-esque, but also attracts smart, talented people. So you have like advertising and trading and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and playing video games. I don't really know if that's like an industry, but like there's that mindset of like those people end up like, like that's some shared set of skills across all those different industries or practices, um, that attracts like smart, talented people. Like why do so many smart, talented people just go into like trading? Um, mm -hmm. and I wonder if there's some other sort of, similar gravity well effect there that is also attracting smart talented people into like climate um maybe from like a different crowd or whatever but so i wonder maybe if like before the last five years or whatever like maybe there was maybe that was where everyone was dumping into i don't really know um yeah do you have some general theory of what these uh gravity wells for talent are like or how, what connects to, uh, trading to climate i don't no and maybe they're different crowds like i yeah and that's why i just like stuck it in a footnote because i was lazy and i was like i don't know what to do with this thought but i need to put it somewhere um uh but it just seems like it like yeah i don't there's just something about these like all these sorts of industries where it's like if they were starting with a blank slate they could be doing like anything and for some reason they just all end up in these sort of like non-obvious places like why is 
like why are there so many people that work that end up in treating like it's just like so specific when you really think about it mm-hmm. um and then like same with like climate where i mean depending on how literally you take sort of like climate doomer predictions or whatever but if you don't think the world is going to end in 30 years like then why is everyone so focused on this one specific thing when they could be working on like lots of different things um and so in, yeah in both cases it feels like they kind of like flop in there somehow i did put in um yeah in that addendum and just sort of thinking about like what is the shape of a doomer industry um like i think one of the under discussed aspects of it is that it is like adjacent to some kind of like commercial opportunity so like the reason why everyone doesn't just go off and work on like global poverty is because there's like no money to be made and working on that but like if you think about like misinformation and the threat of like deep fakes or something upending democracy or you think about ai safety or climate or whatever like they are adjacent to commercial industries where you can actually like make a real salary and feel like relevant to the business world or whatever or to like all your peers um while still also working on this social cause area mm. um so yeah i don't know if that that helps at least somewhat and and that probably the simplest you know like sort of like non-overthinking it answer for like why it is like advertising and trading attracts so many people is just because you can make a lot of money in it and that's that simple oh uh, i have one theory about trading and video games that connects them yeah. um Bern Hobart, funnily enough, another footnote, um, Bern Hobart, uh, it was actually a, like a blog post about SaaS products or something. And one of the footnotes was, you know, one of the positive things about finance might be that it gives a sort of um, venting for talented people who just like to play zero sum or negative sum games. Um, and that otherwise they would have been used up in a war. But since there's no war, they would be doing something else destructive in our world. And if you can just put them in front of a trading screen and make the, you know, get the, get the microsecond efficiency of some like equity market, uh, better, it's like better than anything else I could be doing with that mentality. Um, I kind of um, like that. Yeah. And it's it's just, of, there's some parallel with this for like content creators too. And I will cringingly put myself in that category, but it's <laughs> just like, there's also this grouping of people where it's like, I don't really know like why, like. They are kind of just like bodies in a room, again, myself included. Right. Like, what else would you be doing if not this? At least there's a way to like kind of make money in this. But it's like a much more amorphous and yeah, non, non-coherent industry than like trading. But yeah, concept, a different, different set of people. Yeah. Um, one interesting area that is not included, one, I guess, philosophy that is not in any of these influential IGM machines in Silicon Valley is religion. I mean, you know, they, they've been like some of the most important ideas in history. And yet somehow they're, um, so far, they've had like very little influence in terms of what kinds of things the new elite is funding and paying attention to. Do you think that will change? Or have we just had a complete change in terms of what kinds of ideas get promoted? Yeah, TBD. Um, I think like the new right is bringing at least some of those underlying like christian religious values back mm-hmm. um maybe they're not like literally funding churches or something um but like how do we sort of like yeah bring christian values back to to public society i think there's a lot there is a lot going on there um even if it's not explicitly called religion um and then so yeah i mean that, that's one question of like uh, among elites that are um you know explicitly religious how are they sort of like encoding those um those values into public institutions i think that is sort of happening on that front um i also just think like like if we take a broader view of like how does religion factor into our day-to-day life um i feel like it's a weirdly like people ask this question more than they need to ask it or something like where like 
you know, everyone sort of says, oh, like, you know, people aren't religious anymore. They're not going to church. So they need to find meaning. Like, how do we like create new religions today? And I, I just I feel like people are religious. They're just religious about different things. And that was sort of one of my conclusions with climate is like in the early 2000s, you had Michael Creighton um, criticizing uh, uh, environmentalism as a religion and saying um Saying, saying that you know it's distracting people from the science and uh and maybe we shouldn't treat environmentalism as religion we should really get back to the science um whereas i think like you know 20 years later it's like i think it just is a religion for a lot of people and why not just lean into that and say like i don't like that is how people are finding meaning that is how people are finding community um so i don't know like there it is there's there's a religion like we may not literally have like actively practicing christians in america or something and you know, there's the question of what else does religion need to fulfill that it's not through something like climate. But I also think that religious practice is very like active and around us everywhere. And like, I don't think, I don't think that's like sad or bad. I think that's just like how it's evolved. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Final question. You have a great blog post about um, shamelessness as a strategy. What are you most shameless about in public? What is your most shameful strategy? Yeah. (laughs) Ooh, I don't know that I, I, um, oh man, I wish I had a really good juicy answer for you. <laughs> I'm, maybe you have to ask someone else that knows me, what am I most shameless about in public? Uh, so in property of being shameless, it's like, you, you don't even realize it's shameful. You're so shameless. It's, you know, <laughs> it's like beyond <laughs> yeah, you even keep track of it that way. Just the fact. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I'm sure I have something. I think I'm a very shameful person. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I have. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not the best at being shameless. Uh, yeah, you're gonna have to ask. You're gonna have to ask a friend to tell them right. to tell you what I'm most shameless about. It sounds good. It sounds good. Um, okay, Nadia, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, l- l- so uh, tell people where they can find your. Um, your blog, your Twitter, anywhere else that they yeah. should look for you? Uh, blog is at um, Nadia, N-A-D-I-A dot X-Y-Z. And I'm on Twitter at Nayafia, N-A-Y-A-F-I-A. Awesome. Okay. Awesome, Nadia. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Chad.